0: Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. On this episode, we feature the full speaker series talk with Jaron Lanier, computer scientist, futurist, and author of the books Who Owns the Future and You Are Not a Gadget. Over the next hour, Jaron talks about the future of the digital economy and its impact on work and society. He also talks about issues of privacy, the power of Silicon Valley, dystopian science fiction, technology and spirituality, and much more. I'm Tom Patterson. I'm the
1: acting uh, director of the Schornstein Center. Um, so, Jaron Lanier. Uh, I don't even quite know where to begin with this description of Jaron. All right. So, computer scientist, writer, musician, uh, currently the interdisciplinary scientist at Microsoft Research, uh, coined the term virtual reality, mixed reality. Uh, uh, his startup uh, created the first avatar. Uh, Is books have been phenomenal sellers who owns the future you are not a gadget who owns the future received our goldsmith book prize uh, book prize last year uh, as the best book in the area of uh, media politics and public policy Got uh, an enormous collection of rare musical instruments uh been a composer uh, and has performed with philip glass and others and i could go on but i won't jaren Hey, welcome!
2: Thanks for having me here. So, um, I, as some of you might know, I, uh, I wrote a book, uh, as 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 uh, Tom just mentioned, called Who Owns the Future, a few years ago, in which I came to a point of view uh, about the future of economics that uh, uh, seems entirely commonsensical to me, and yet was received with surprise in some quarters. Uh, And uh, uh, the essence of the idea is that we've created only half of the digital economy in the sense that uh, we have quasi-monopolistic information uh, businesses such as uh, Facebook or Uber That accumulate enormous uh, information to the point of information superiority over everybody else and gain tremendous formal economic benefits in the sense of things like cash and equity. And meanwhile, other people gain, uh, ordinary people uh, typically do gain benefits from the system, but of an entirely different nature. Uh, They gain informal benefits such as increased convenience. Um, And the question is whether that trajectory is sustainable or not. Um, I came to the conclusion that it isn't. That you can't have an economy in which there's just a tiny hyper fortunate formal part and then a vast uh, uh, kind of uh, not necessarily impoverished but definitely less secure informal part. Um, There are various reasons I believe it's not sustainable and I I won't introduce the whole book to you in just 10 or 15 minutes as as uh, I'm expected to hear but uh, as an example of why it doesn't work um, that system no longer associates risk with reward Uh, as an example um, everybody uh, a very small number of people on YouTube might make some money from their YouTube video. uh, the very, small dis- the very small number of people who do well is what we call a Zip distribution, which is quite different from a, a normal distribution or a bell curve, which is uh, in terms of economic outcomes is what we might associate with what we can call um, a middle class, although I hate to use the term middle class because it's so fraught with other meanings. But uh, the zip curve does not give us that, and that's that's the typical outcome for the people who aren't at the center. But the key thing is that all those people who are trying to be at the peak of the zip curve have to self-finance and take their own risk, but the casino always wins, no matter who else might win or lose, even though only a few others win. So it's really a casino type of economics where there's guaranteed benefit for whoever runs the, the hub. And and this you can have a little bit of that in the economy, but not a lot of it. And because when you have a lot of it, you no longer have authentic finance because you're not distributing risk anymore. You're you're um, you're just radiating risk away from capital. So it, it just it just doesn't work. Um, there are other reasons uh, that I think it's not sustainable. <coughs> the most uh, concrete example I found for explaining my point of view is language translation. So uh, we now can benefit from approximate. Uh, language translation that's still usable and we get it on v- very easily and for free from companies like Microsoft and Google but the thing about it is uh, we present we're presented with these services they're marketed as if they're magic brains that, that that just understand language and there's artificial intelligence but there's nothing of the kind what there actually is um, is uh, the me um, <laughs> I know the I, on, on behalf of Silicon Valley I apologize that our devices aren't more clearly usable so that you can at least turn them off. I, I really have something. to think. Anyway, um, so um, the um, language translators are experiencing a transformation similar to what's happened to uh, recorded recording musicians, uh, photographers, investigative journalists, other people who generate information content who used to have real careers, more of a planable life. So the the symptoms are the overall market starts to shrink uh, initially to about a third and then to a tenth. Um, there are still successful people but there's a zip distribution instead of a bell curve so there are just a few successful people. Um, uh, but even the successful ones can't plan their careers. It be, they, they no longer, they have no information superiority over anything so they're just Beholden to fate at this point, they don't know what's going to happen, so there's a they take on all the risk, which didn't used to happen. It used to be more distributed, but um, here's the key thing: with with uh, the language translators, uh, it turns out that you can't just do a magic Chomsky and little algorithm that will convert between languages. Uh, we tried that for decades. That was a a, a lot, many decades of failure. What started to work, which was in the '90s at IBM Research, was what we call big data, <coughs> and. Uh, Then what we do is we gather many, many examples of real translations from people and then we statistically couple them with with, uh, uh, things to be uh, translated, little segments to be translated and we cobble together that and that turns out to be something usable. But what's really going on is we're just finding a different way to present the productivity of real people. There's not actually some magic brain there. There's this whole crowd of people who don't even know that their stuff is being taken behind the curtain. And we have to do it every single day because most casual language, most most language in general, is actually about the world, and the world changes every day. So we have to constantly be gathering translations of current events, the latest the latest slang. So uh, so those are so it, it, it we do, we we steal from millions of people a day to make it work, uh, and so. It seems to me that uh, if that's the prototype of the future, if they're going to be more and more of these cloud services that run the driverless cars and run the make our clothes and 3D print our objects, and you know, if we're going to have more and more of these things that either make the world more hyper-efficient in an Uber kind of way or make it more automated in a driverless car way. From an economic point of view, those are similar. Hard to distinguish, I think. But either way, if we're going to keep on doing that, and we're gonna pretend that people are obsolete buggy whips when in fact we still need them, then not only is it unfair, but we gradually artificially shrink the economy on paper because we're refusing to acknowledge the value because we just we care more about concentrating it around the information hubs and that's so that's bad for everybody. That's even bad for Silicon Valley. So um, so these, these incredible giant fortunes, the fastest ones in history that we make by, by cornering information about other people, it's just not sustainable. We have to find some way to, full it in, to turn it into a, full, a complete economy. So that leads me into this idea of just paying those translators. If we need them, let's pay them. Then they get richer. Then they can buy our stuff. Then we have a growing market. Wouldn't that be great? or let's not have a market anymore if we really aren't willing to pay the translators and we have to admit that the whole market mechanism is not something that we're accepting and we have to move to a completely different thing some, some other socialism basic income model i don't know I'm, but we have to go in a different direction but we can't pretend that we're creating a new kind of market when we're only willing to create half of it so that that's the premise to actually figure out how to pay people how that whole scheme would work is um, an interesting uh, research project at this point. I feel, um, and I'm sure if any of you, if there are any economists in the room, you're probably filled with questions. Well, how would you do this? How would you do that? What about that? And I just just had, uh, I think, about 40 economists this morning. I went through all these questions. um, So uh, it's possible that the questions will send us in a more technical direction. And I'm happy to have that discussion if that's where people are interested in going, because it's extremely interesting. but essentially there's, there has to be some way you price information, there has to be a way that people can make individual decisions about what to do about their own information uh, that's, that's tenable. Um, I, uh, one of the things that's concerned me a great deal um, especially in the last year as I've interacted mostly with European regulators about this is that the, the number and difficulty of privacy related decisions that we're asking people to make is simply not tenable. I, I don't believe that anybody but a tiny minority of techli- technical-minded people are able to competently set their Facebook privacy settings. And, I, you know, and so uh, we can't have a world in which you have to do a million times that level of complexity to, to be a full participant. Um, you have, we have to come up with a world that's simple enough for people to manage. And, uh, and I think uh, in the past the way we've managed complexity in society is with economies. That's what they're for. So if we, could all, if we could all just be infinitely wise and omniscient, then we wouldn't need an economy, right? We'd all just make the best decision all the time. and Life would be simple. But so I think we do need to find some way to update economics to take account of uh, the, this uh, information-centric world we're building. We're still only at the bare beginnings of it. But uh, it'll, what's happened to recorded musicians and to language translati- translators will happen to everything, basically. Um, it could happen to educators through MOOCs and whatnot. Um, So uh, we we do have to figure it out. Um, And uh, I know there's a kind of um, uh, economics has become somewhat faith-based, perhaps out of necessity, because of the uncertainties and complexities inherent in it. And so therefore, people have quite emotional and sometimes really visceral reactions to the economic ideas of others, um, if they do not agree so i'm I'm sometimes i found myself reviled by the people who want everything to be free because they have an ideology about that um i've also uh well i've encountered various things i'm really very open-minded all i ask is that uh whatever starting point somebody comes to whatever bias you might find yourself having that you really think through the whole system and try to imagine a whole system working with it and and uh uh, it's hard i don't claim to have a complete golden answer for the future, I, do, I will claim to have come up with the start of a new answer that might prove to be viable, although I don't think we know enough about it yet. Um, so I think that's, <laughs> it, how, I don't know how long that was, but that's, that's the basic introduction. Uh, in order to do it fast, I left out all the jokes. I'm not entertaining you as well as I might. But um, if you're, uh, depending on the nature of the questions, maybe I'll throw some of the jokes in. As, the, as, the, uh, <laughs> as our session proceeds. Okay, let's open it up, and
1: uh, again, uh, students first. Um, and if you could, uh, please identify yourself when you, uh, uh, right before you ask your question. Hello, my name is uh, Nico.
0: I'm,
2: uh, I think the microphone is coming to you. Okay, you.
0: My name is Nico, I'm with the Ash, uh, Ash Center, I'm a fellow at the Ash Center i was a mid-care NPA student. Uh, You might have read that uh, as of yesterday or early this week, uh, the Chinese government announced that the citizen score that uh, Tencent and Alibaba uh, did start would become mandatory by 2020 as a new form of connection and relationship, data driven, of course, between the government and its citizens. And I had the pleasure of rereading a couple of days ago, uh, Michel Foucault chapter on panopticism, and for me this is very interesting in the sense that the, the metaphor that you coined, the siren servers, with this kind of new relationship taken to a whole new level. Uh, and I was wondering what, we, what you saw, which you were aware of that and what were your thoughts about
2: then? Yeah, you know, this is so interesting. Um, in um I guess it was about the turn of the century, maybe about 15 years ago, I started talking about what I was calling digital Maoism, which was the tendency of, uh, of this fetishizing of uh, crowdsourcing turning into a sort of a weird um, pseudo groupthink think kind of mechanism that would be very exploitable by, by anybody who could gain control of a, of a central information hub. And people say, oh, you're red-baiting, you're red-baiting, and don't, don't do not that. I think it's actually rather precise. And I, I have to say, the, the mainland Chinese translation of, of, uh, of, of my work, I, the translator called me, said, OK, you have this thing, digital Maoism. <laughs> Can you explain that to me? So I explained it. He said, oh, that's rather precise. So as far as I know, it was translated as that in Chinese, uh, perhaps not understood as a critique by some, I don't know. Um, I have I have to say I have interacted with uh, a, a, a quite a variety of people in, in leadership roles in China and there's um, I, I <laughs> at least for me I perceive a kind of an odd similarity to, to Silicon Valley in that there's this there's this self certainty that we're really smart we're the fantastic technocrats we really know what's best for the world and we have this vision of how everybody can be more harmonious we can bring all these benefits to people and all we have to do is organize the world so well according to our principles and um, I mean the interesting thing about it is that from the point of view of the person doing it of course it's this wonderful activity it's and, and um, uh, I um, Uh, So I, you know, China has accomplished a lot. I mean, just to just to say, you know, when I was uh, 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 a teenager, say in the 70s, uh, if we thought about China, we thought about, oh, my God, when this thing's when this sleeping giant awakes, will it be nuclear war? Will it be this horrible cataclysm? What, what will they be like? And by any measure, the, the development of China has been better both for the Chinese and for everybody else than anybody dared hope at the start. So we have to say <clears throat> there's a lot to be happy about with China. And yet this kind of stuff is really creepy. And um, I, uh, well, it, it does start to take on sort of uh, like some of the you know classical science fiction controlled society uh, qualities uh, from um, well my favorite the enforcer and the machine stops sort of a, sort of a scenario if the, do you all know what that is ah, okay go <coughs> so so um, uh, be educated and go. <laughs> Find Ian Forster's novella called The Machine Stops. It's the prototype of technology criticism for our time. And he he develops a scenario very similar to our present that includes something like Facebook and something like Skype. And this was from about 1907 and uh, describes societal and economic uh, effects of it. But uh, And then it's been copied many, many times by other science fiction writers uh, to the present day. It's the prototype for everything else, for The Matrix and the Social Network movie and all that. Anyway... Um, uh, so your, your question wasn't too uh, pointed. Uh, if you wanted me to comment on Foucault, I, um, I have found some of Foucault useful and some of it not, uh, but that's maybe that's a bit far afield. Um, so uh, that's, I hope that's enough of an answer. Please. Um, hi, my name is Evan Zimmerman. I'm actually a visiting student from the University of Chicago. Uh, I have the a lot of questions. I'm going to try and narrow it to to two. If that's all right. Sure. The first one is um, about companies do it, engaging in social change. I'm wondering how much of of the problems that people seem to encounter come from from discomfort with the direction that of, of where companies are trying to take society. Do you have any comments on that? It's like with Facebook privacy, a lot of my friends who describe Facebook privacy as complicated a lot of times for them it's complicated because they're trying to find something that Facebook doesn't even want to offer them, right? They have a vision of the future
3: as, as this very, um, mm. without privacy. Policy.
2: Right. Well, okay, so first of all, um, there's something that you've pointed out here which is extremely important for people to understand. So. Um, the, the, whenever um, a technology offers you convenience it's impossible for that to be offered without it also manipulating you because it's choosing what course of action will be the most convenient for you there's no way to make everything equally convenient uh, because there's this thing called the cost of choice so you can't you can't choose between five million search results you can't choose between five million potential whatever's There, there has to be some way that these services Winnow it so that so conveniences becomes indis- becomes indistinguishable from from uh, social manipulation. That's not necessarily a bad thing. I think actually, for the most part, it's been neither good nor bad, but just kind of random and bland, actually. But there's some cases when when it's been good and bad. Certainly, um, the uh, there's so much more to say about this. I mean, um, the uh, uh, Facebook's a highly ideological company. Um, I think that the, the people who run Facebook are, are for the most part well intentioned and, and certainly within their own frameworks of thinking they're not bad people. Uh, this is a, an important point. Um, of all the influential elites in history I think we might have the sort of nicest and most um, charitable one ever in Silicon Valley. Uh, but in a way that shouldn't matter. There's a problem that whenever power is concentrated, often the first generation is more um, sympathetic than those who <coughs> take power later. So Bolsheviks are more sympathetic than Stalinists would be an example. So I, I, uh, if you look at something like Facebook, one of the interesting things about it is it's the first public company that's effectively controlled by one person, which which should be an oxymoron. But it turns out not to necessarily be. Nobody had tried it before. Um, but so you have this highly concentrated power, and um, it is it is highly ideological. This the the you know intrinsic good of sharing and all that stuff. Um, so uh, whatever fits into a particular ideology then suddenly becomes convenient and other stuff. So inconvenience can be quite seriously inconvenient in information systems. Um, what uh, th- this is a kind of an. <sighs> an important point. I hope I don't sound too cynical talking about it, but um, the whole business these days runs on what we call advertising, right? So Google uh, Google, and Facebook essentially make, only make money from what they call advertising, but within that, um, only a tiny, tiny, tiny little um, rind of it is what we traditionally call advertising, and most of it is actually the micromanagement of the easy avail- easily available options and the forms of what links take up your small screen and that that's a very, very important point. So um, if you uh, if you say uh, we're all mostly interfacing with either screens this big or scre- or screens that big, they're not they're not that big. And so if you can only list a certain number of options and what those options might be anything, it might be like who to try to sleep with on some stupid network for kids or, or it might be uh, which I don't know what which book to buy on Amazon, whatever it is. So um, if you can, Uh, manipulate which of those things are easily accessible, the the level of inconvenience involved in digging deeper than that is actually substantial and so you effectively limit the number of, you funnel the number of options available for people and so it almost becomes just direct behavioral manipulation at that point through information control. Information becomes power in a more sort of direct and immediate way than previously. And um, so, or to put it another way, these companies make their money by directing inconvenience precisely in order to shove people around <laughs> you know so that's a very cynical way of putting it and i say these companies let me be more specific i do i mean i mean i sold the company to google like i'm totally part of it i'm an insider I benefited from it and a little bit of it's going to be okay because any there's no such thing as a political or economic system that doesn't have a degree of um Manipulation and chicanery and nonsense commensurate with what we find inside any person, right? So that's always going to be present, but it's just a question of how much. Is it? Is is our is our nonsense sort of kept to a low boil so that it's it's we're we're in a sustainable pattern? And I think we've we've exceeded it. We're boiling over with nonsense. Okay. Thank <laughs> you. No, I hope yeah. that was an answer to your question. Okay.
1: It's open now to anybody that would like to, uh, yeah, at oh. least. Okay.
2: yeah. No, it's whoever has the mic, I think, yeah. maybe. But yeah. can we get yeah. to this yeah. gentleman after? Yeah, yeah. Let's okay. go ahead.
3: Hi, my name's Peg. I used to be in publishing and now I'm teaching. So I've thought a lot about, you know, whether or not I'm going to be replaced. But I probably have you know, I'll be dead by then. But in the meantime, I'm questioning whether or not this is really going to have the kind of effect that you're talking about. Because what I'm seeing right now, is it just something a little blip, you know, what you're talking about in the future is going to be very different? Or is it something that's really going to be a long-term kind of pattern as far as some kind of technology taking over and replacing various people in the workforce? Like me specifically, what I see is that there's a boom in instructional technologies. So there's a lot of people out there working, creating these all these great new things and I'm using them all. So currently, right now, I don't see what you're talking about. When I see that you're talking about <clears throat> what could possibly happen, I'm just wondering on what basis are you saying that you're sure that this is going to happen? You know, mm. it's kind of like climate change. You know, it's the same kind of
2: thing. Yeah, right? sure. I'm happy to answer that. Um, I need to correct you. I've ne- I haven't ever said that I'm sure it's going to happen. And I, I, I try to be as uh, measured and qualified in my claims as I can manage. But um, uh, I. Th- it seems to be happening on the basis of observing the early populations that went through the transformation so we have canaries in the coal mine who went through transformations earlier than other populations and musicians are a good example so but there are other examples too which i can i can go into in a second but a very typical sequence of events is the first thing that happens is it seems like everything's going to be great it seems as though wow i'm going to be able to reach more people i have better tools and uh, we actually saw this in journalism, too, where at the dawn of the internet, a ton of, of capital flowed into newspapers and magazines because they were, oh my god, this is going to be huge. It will be bigger than ever. Um, I, and uh, what happens after that is a sequence, um, and, and this is, this is a, a sort of a subtle point. Uh, let me go back to the example about the translators for a second. So, so were the translators automated out of jobs, they're another early population. There, there are other canaries in the coal miners in the coal mine, um, uh, poly, polyglot canaries, I guess. Um, and uh, were they automated out of a job? Not really, because they're still needed. They're not like buggy whips that are obsolete. It's more like they're hyper-organized in a way that creates an illusion of automation. And so um, what tends to happen is First, all these tools come along, all this technology seems like, oh, this is going to be great. We'll have more options than ever. And then everybody kind of gets subjugated by the tools in such a way that some central hub gets more information about the people than they have about themselves. Then that hub finds a way to enrich itself in a cycle that increases and increases. And suddenly we end up with the the kind of decimation we see in the other fields. That hasn't happened as yet to to, to teaching. Um, And... It, there are a couple of impediments to the process for many kinds of teaching because uh, many of the jobs are government jobs like for the public schools and whatnot. So uh, in principle, uh, educational technology could could enact the same sequence of events. Um, whether it will, I don't claim certainty. Um, I, um, I have been quite concerned, though, about... Um, there's a tremendous drive towards... Uh, MOOCs and and related things where you have uh, an organizational principle that's a a, a little like some sort of um, cross between Napster and Uber or something for the future of teaching and what it's supposed to be oh it's lowering costs it's it's lowering barriers to access it'll help all these people but the problem with that is that if you if the price for doing that is defunding the world the culture these the sustenance of the, edu- of the class of educators in the world. And if you're doing that in, this, in um, underprivileged parts of the world in such a way that nobody there will ever be able to afford to become an instructor, you're kind of undoing more than you're doing. Um, this remi- I mean, I had the most vivid sense of this back when we were watching the, the, the first protests in Tahrir Square in Cairo, and the, in, you know, in an overflowing, bubbling narcissism in Silicon Valley, you're saying, oh, it's a Facebook revolution, it's a Twitter revolution. And I remember saying to my friends, Twitter's not going to give these kids jobs, you know. Like you can't, you can't just do disruption without any creation to coincide with it, and then expect anything created at the end of the day. So it's a, you know, as long as you can think through the whole cycle of both your creative destruction and then your creative creation, then plausibly you're doing something. So I, I hope that this this has answered your question. I, I, I'm not sure if it has entirely, but. Um, uh, I, I, there is often, when things are starting to get hyper-organized by an information system, there's often an illusion for the people involved at first that things are going to be great because it seems like there's more tools, more connection, and then it's in later stages that it's that they start to find their prospects diminishing. Um, that's how it's been so far for the groups that have been affected. Whether it'll be so for all groups in the future, of course, I don't claim certainty.
0: No. no. You, thanks. Uh, you began by saying that uh, language translators are to be
2: compensated for adding value to the economy. Mm -hmm. On that same basis, why shouldn't everyone else also be paid uh, by uh, for-profit corporations that are using
0: what you refer to as their own information? And I would point out that uh, I believe a Facebook user recently, uh, through their will, uh, determined who would inherit their Facebook account, which shows some degree of ownership already.
2: Well, um, I mean, my, what I've proposed in the book is precisely that: that um, if the information is of value, then it, there should then people should be able to claim compensation for it in a very general way. Um, I do think that that would grow the economy and make uh, and, and create a sustainable future that would still give us the advantages of these systems and, and kind of minimize the disadvantages of them, which will, of course, always be present. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's um, that's what I'm exploring. Um, I should say um, there are many. Let me just foresee a few questions that always come up. For those of you who haven't read the book, I'll just try to do this really quick. Some of you are thinking, um, well, wait a second, the, your value to Facebook is, cal- I read somewhere it was only calculated at four bucks. I mean, who cares if pay- Facebook pays you? And the thing about that you have to understand is that A, um, as we proceed into the uh, information age more and more, there'll be more and more of these cloud services that are running aspects of the world to the point where they'll be, they're currently, um, of big computers that are spying on you and creating a dossier in, in the hopes of manipulating you, they're probably, uh, for the, on the, for the average person two or 3,000, um, of which only a few dozen are criminal and only a few dozen are intelligence agencies and the rest are commercial. Um, and <laughs> um, and uh, in the fe- at some point, I don't know, I think 2030 will be in the millions.? Okay? So the thing is, even though your, the, the, the monetary value that might come from a single one of them might not be much cumulatively, I think it might provide an alternative to a basic income model for a sustainable high-tech society with a lot of optimization and automation that's um, uh, more dynamic, more democratic, more uh, more free. Um, uh, a little more libertarian maybe, although I'm not a libertarian fanatic like most of my friends in Silicon Valley, but um, so it's, a, it's an alternative, and I think an interesting conversation is between you know that idea and the basic income model. It's been a, a very active conversation in Europe, especially, um, so, so you have to remember there'll be a lot of them. Any particular one probably won't give you much. The other thing is that um, people are different, and in any given one, there tends to be a little peak of a few people who turn out to be very valuable to that one, but they're not the same people for each one. So a fairly um, significant percentage of the population, and I don't know the number, <laughs> I'm really interested in this. I'm trying to find different ways to approach this, both empirically and theoretically. But um, a significant number of people will find a little peak of value to to, to like some cloud service out there. Um, and so we'll do well. And what we hope is that the overall distribution, after all of that, all those little peaks will turn into something closer to a bell curve, which is the formula for sustainability. Um, where this, where the most people, where there's a broad distribution of power and wealth and influence, um, and and then um, oh, there's so much more <laughs> to say about this because this does get a little, a little. Uh, there's a lot of nuance in all of this, so maybe it, I won't go into the technical side of it now. But um, uh, I think there's at least a potential that we can do something general. Um, it's it's very true that. Um, the information that's of value is sometimes created willfully, such as a YouTube video, and sometimes just taken, and you're not even aware you generated the value. Uh, we needn't make a distinguish. We needn't distinguish those two. If a if a camera spying on you gets something valuable out of that, you should be paid for it. But the other thing I want to say is that um, let's talk about privacy for a second. Almost all um, discussions about privacy that are policy oriented talk about consent, and yet what if the the the, co- the cognitive cost of consent is impossible. What if the only way to do consent would be to check boxes a, um, a million and a half times an hour, and nobody can possibly do it. But if you could set the price of your information, what you could do when you wanted privacy, you could just set your knob really high. Now you have privacy because nobody can afford to spy on you for a while unless you move it back down. If you, uh, if you have an ideological feeling that everything should be free, you can express that by turning it all the way down to zero. Um, and uh, most people would probably try to find some place in the middle that would maximize their income and there'd be no perfect place and they don't be tweaking and day trader type people would be always tweaking every day and other people would just say, oh, whatever, I'll just put it somewhere or you might, some, some I don't know. But anyway, that that's a that's a sort of a, a one knob approach to privacy that might be plausible. Because if you just say, there's there's really no way to just Consent, like you can't say I deny all consent because then you can't interact with anything, and as soon as you just open the door to consent, all of a sudden the whole floodgates. You know, there, there's really there's no way to do consent in detail other than this that I've ever seen proposed. So, um, yeah.
0: Hi, I'm
2: Federico from Argentina. I'd like to know your opinion of Mister Robots. I'm sorry, I couldn't
0: hear you. Okay. Hi. I'm I'm good. Good. Uh, is Hi, yeah. uh, I'm from Argentina, I'd like to know your opinion of Mr. Robot, the TV all show.
2: Right. So I think what you said is you're from Argentina and you want my opinion of the TV show, Mr. Robot? Exactly. Okay, um, first of all, love Argentina. Thank you. Um, <laughs> um, Mr. Robot, I've only seen um, one or two episodes of it and I found it pretty impressive actually. Um, but I I didn't see enough of it to have an opinion of the overall thing. Um, this sort of um, kind of very dark paranoid sensibility about um, uh, the quantitative mind and using computers to manipulate other people. Um, you know, it, there's a rich history to that feeling, which which you know goes back to the M. Forster novella I mentioned, and um, perhaps an even better point to talk about is, is um, uh, 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 Norbert Wiener's early books on cybernetics where he foresaw the kind of societal control that could, could uh, accompany rising information technologies. Uh, I, um, I have a bit of a history in that since I've been so interwoven with it and I've known a lot of the people who created, um, like I did, the I, I came up with most of the gadgets and some of the scenes for Minority Report and that sort of thing, which is another one of those um uh, that was a film kind of in the same genre and um I've had mixed feelings about it like back in the 80s I used to have you heard of a writer named uh, William Gibson a novel co- so the, um, he wrote a, one of the earlier cyberpunk novels which was called um Kryptonmicon <coughs> <was he>? um, <laughs> 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 I think is uh, is not him that's um. Anyway, uh, uh, I don't remember what it was called now, which is just terrible and embarrassing. But anyway, I used to call him up and, um, and say, Neuromancer, thank you. I used to call him up while he was writing Neuromancer. and said, don't make it so dark. It's going to like bum everybody out. Show some light. This is like too depressing. You can't make it like this. And, and he, I can't do a Tennessee accent, but he had this strong Tennessee accent. Well, Jared, I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying to make it, but it's just coming out that way, you know. <laughs> and you know, it's, it's certainly the most ridiculous conversation in history, but, um, I, uh, I, you know, for all of the, I sort of feel like the darkness should be reserved most of all for attempts to to improve it, which is, you know, what I what I devoted myself to here. And I, but you know, we're 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 doing terribly at having reasonably humanistic and positive and friendly, happy visions of the future lately. I mean, I I can't really think of one for uh, the future since maybe the earlier versions of Star Trek or something like that. I mean, it's really been a long time since we've had that. And these days, you can't even fund any science fiction unless it's just bleak and disgusting. And um, and I, you know, it's, uh, I, I think it's, I wish it was a little less so, but that's that's uh, where we're at. And I, I, I tend to think that even the people who are saying on the surface, "Oh, you don't have to pay me for Facebook. I love it. I love Facebook. I love Uber. I'm happy. It's a, this is a paradise." And I'm really happy living in my parents' house still. And I'm really happy. <laughs> I don't know. For for I hear I talk to people like that a lot, and I sort of feel like on some level in the in their gut they're realizing that it doesn't all add up, and there's a bit of a sense of dread. Um, and of course, not only about that, also about all sorts of other issues. I mean, um, one of the things. That I think is not well enough understood is that if we go back to the early '90s or the late '80s, there was a we already understood that climate change was going to be a huge, huge challenge. This this was not anything new, and a lot of the motivation for the. Uh, the codification of the internet, as opposed to just a bunch of separate networks working on packet switching, um, was due to well to Al Gore in particular. But a lot of the motivation was to try to create a utopian information system so everyone could have direct access to scientific information and to experts. And what we all believed back then is that if that device existed in the world, it would simply be impossible that something like climate change denialism could ever come into existence. Right. So that was that was the. Um, uh, the worst failure of prediction in my career, <laughs> and and I think that that sense that you know all these jewels are before us, all this access to information, and yet we're still mired. Um, I think that that does uh, that's part of what leads to this sensibility of darkness in our science fiction of the future lately. Um, I'll leave the I'll let the person with the microphone choose. Uh,
3: hello, my name's
2: or maybe the microphone itself will choose. Uh,
3: hello my name is Quinn. I'm a software engineer at the CID. Um, from my experience, like most users don't want to pay for software, so you to end up gamifying the app or selling your information. Do mm. you think that's like a symptom or that's just Yeah,
2: look look, if we're not paying them, asking them to want to pay is ridiculous. I mean, like this is the thing that this is just so clear to me. Like, if I go to you and I say, hey, you know what? I'm not going to pay you for your work. You go fix my roof, but I'm not going to pay you. And then they say, well, I don't want to have to pay for my rent or my food. That's natural. I mean, like, um, if they're earning money from the same economy, I think all of a sudden paying into it is going to start to make more sense to them. You know, like, if that's what I'm talking about, the difference between a formal economy and an informal economy. If you're telling people... Uh, you're only going to get informal benefits. Well, why should they be putting forward formal payment? Uh, so, I, I, I think that the resistance to paying for information is abso- absolutely natural if for, to somebody who's been e- economically disempowered. I should say that somebody who is in a situation where they absolutely have no hope of getting employment resists paying rent, too. And it doesn't feel like that. Like, I mean, you have to have a social contract that goes both ways. And so, Either you have a social contract that (coughs) involves money or you invent some other kind of social contract that you think can work, but you can't have half a social contract that involves money. So I have absolute sympathy for people who say, I don't want to pay for information because they're not getting paid for their information. Why should they? Why on earth? You'd be insane to say, oh, I want to pay for software, but I don't want to be paid for what I contribute. I mean, nobody's going to do that. So I, I think they're acting rationally in the current situation.
1: Hi, my name's Greg Byer,
0: and I'm finishing a book about uh, Buddhism and investing, and I'm wondering what you think the uh, future of blogging. You got to laugh for that, did you? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, I'm sorry. So, what were you saying?
2: That you're, what you're asking for the future of a uh, uh, future of blogging? Uh, what oh, blogging! What, what the world is? I want it's bloggers amazing. to be able to make money. I mean, this is like so the most obvious thing in the world. Like right now, there uh, a blogger makes more money for Silicon Valley than for than for themselves, and that's bad for Silicon Valley because then the blogger won't be able to f- afford to buy whatever new thing. You know, I want you to get paid, and then you'll go buy lots of hollow lenses or whatever. So, uh, I, I like. I think we should be paying them. That's really simple. You know, proportional to how successful they are and all that, of course. But, uh, but yeah, that's. Uh, I can't think of a clearer example. Somebody behind you, there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I, exceptional. This is Katrin
3: Kranicky. I, I just loved this, but I do have a question. Mm-hmm. And. Um, and I'm debating this question because I think it's controversial, but I still will ask it. And uh, the question is, what is the future of religion in this information-driven world?
2: You talk know oh, about religion. the
3: future of economy, but what about religion? Yeah,
2: so I've also written quite a bit about this. as an earlier book of mine called You Are Not a Gadget that addresses issues of uh, spirituality and computation. Um, uh, it's it's. Um, I mean of course everything is connected but it does seem a little far afield from the topic of today's talk. Um, I'll just try to address it as briefly as I can. Um, We have a tendency, um, uh, the culture is, (laughs) we have a a tendency to follow the culture of Silicon Valley now because first of all that's where the money is and everybody seems to respect money for some damn reason And, um, and but also just because the gadgets convey ideology to us, as we were describing before in our discussion of uh, Facebook and options. And the way we design our gadgets tends to suggest that people are computers, or elabor- it's, it's a hyper-materialist or computationalist worldview. So you talk to your computer, you have a Siri or Cortana, and as soon as you're talking to your phone, um, after a while you start to think, well, that's kind of like a person, I guess I'm like a person. And and um, this idea of um, the person not being something somewhat exceptional the person not being perhaps a little supernatural at core um, has become pervasive so um, corporations are people corporations are algorithms algorithms are people there's been a um, there's been this conflation of all those things between our present Supreme Court and Silicon Valley ideology all pointing towards the disappearance of the person and uh, I I don't think technology has to give that message. Um, I'm going to, if I ever finish it, I'll have another book out next year. And I'm trying to, so this is, you know, one of the things that's been charming for me lately is something that I devoted my 20s to, which is virtual reality is fashionable again. So it's kind of fun. And um, (laughs) I like to point out that in virtual reality, uh, you can your body can turn into some weird thing. You can turn into a squid or whatever. And then the the world can change into anything. You can be on Mars or in some fantastic place or inside some giant neuron or whatever. And so all this stuff is changing. And yet, what's constant? Well, what, what virtual reality really is, it's a consciousness-noticing noti- machine because your consciousness is the only thing that ties all those changes together. You notice that you're floating there. Like, what is there? What is that? Well, you're conscious. Your, your awareness is actually a thing that you don't normally notice because there's so much else that's constant in reality that you, you can forego noticing that your yourself is conscious, you know? So um, I hope that people can start to notice that there is something kind of remarkable that we could even call supernatural just within ourselves, that our existence is something other than mechanism, just manifestly so. Otherwise, virtuality wouldn't be possible or would be senseless. I mean, what is in there getting that big show, you know? And so, um, and I can, this is a whole long topic that could be another talk very easily. Um, so I, you know, I think, I I, pr- I think that um, uh, the erasing of the person is part of the power play of making whoever owns the information hub the master of all reality, <laughs> and there are many, many, many manifestations of this. I mean, um, the particular the drive for immortality in, in Silicon Valley is probably the strongest one. There's a, a recreation of old-fashioned religion, by which I mean not really ancient, but maybe medieval ideas about religion where uh, we're all going to be made immortal by some big computer. But it's, it's really interesting. Like for ordinary people, you're going to be immortal because you'll be scooped up into software. And there are already all these projects. Including, for instance, uh, DARPA's funded this um, simulated ghost of a soldier where it's supposed to infer their personality from their social media. And then you have like this talking head that's supposed to be. So people, ordinary people get simulated immortality where there'll be some simulation of you that continues. But then there's also this biologic biological immortality that's being funded like crazy by Silicon Valley figures um, and explicitly so Google says well we'll cure death and so there's this idea that um, whoever gets on top of the technology hub will be genuinely immortal and everybody else will just be simulated immortal which is just the religious <laughs> version of the inequity of the you know the people at the center getting the formal economic benefits and everyone else only getting the informal ones. So. Um, Anyway, I could go on and on about that topic. There's a lot to say about it. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think you have to... um, I don't think you can have a functional economy, society, or democracy if your spirituality is completely insane. You know, your spirituality doesn't have to be shared. It doesn't have to be universal. But it can't be outright insane. And I think that the current ideology is kind of insane. Uh, pretending that the translators don't exist, but that the translation program is conscious—that's insane. So, else uh, question? no, yes. it's it's. Uh,
0: a, uh, yeah. someone else. Uh, hi, Paul. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you the here. Uh, forgive me if
2: you covered this in the book, but what's the mechanism for micro payments? It's something we're thinking about in journalism because paywalls aren't so good. Um, it'd be quite nice to go off on an assignment,
0: maybe find a few thousand people who are interested in what I might write, and charge them a tenth of a cent or a cent for each read it but how do you do that yeah so that's that's
2: a whole interesting technical discussion and I'll the very uh, oh do you, want, do you want me to just do like a speed blurb of the way it works or, or just say that it's the speed blurb okay um, you start um, so uh, the cloud software has to calculate counterfactuals to valid to, to come up with an approximate uh, approximate judgment of how much each person contributed to, to corpora, uh, so in other words, if this person had been left out, how much less useful uh, would the result have been. Use for the result is judged uh, financially, by economic output, so, so like how much money would the, the server have made. So now, then you get you, you, you get ranked by how much you contributed, uh, and remember, there'll be millions of different corpora, corpora that are using your data whether you want it or not, and then you're ranked by all of them, and then w- you, you multiply your ranking by your judgment of how what price, that knob I was talking about from a lot to nothing or whatever you choose. Um, the overall system um, has to have, in my view, a, a Keynesian regulatory regime that's similar to what we do with fiscal regulation, but it's a little different in that There'll be a constant global setting between marginal cost and average cost that depends on on how on how um, on whether there's a middle class bulge appearing, in the outcome of the middle class bulge being judged as uh, desirable. There's um, uh, there has to be a uh, uh, adjustment to pricing for um, elderly corpora that aren't changing so much anymore, where small changes are are more valued than they would have been when they're younger. Which is whole interest. That's another interesting thing. So th- there's a lot of detail to it. Um, the computer science of it is easier than you might think. That's mostly this this whole thing of figuring out who contributed what to cloud algorithms and deep learning and all that stuff is, is actually not that hard and not very expensive. The the macroeconomic stuff, the, the new kind of regulatory stuff, is a little subtle. Still working on that. Um, uh, seeking collaborations with economists to work on it, to defined eight major unsolved problems with, with it that I'm trying to sort of get through to have a more complete technical description, work in progress. Is that, is that? But you're talking about trading information,
0: not trading money in the real world. On that
2: level, right? Well, I mean, um, I'm presuming that either money continues to exist as we know it or something similar to it, um, the reason for that is, um, so, so in a sense, part of the reason, there's a weird, you know, there's a very strange thing about Silicon Valley right now is that we're not that money motivated because the type of power we have transcends money. And this is a weird thing to understand, but the kind of direct power over the world if, if you look at the crazy multipliers that investors put on companies like Uber or really any of them, I mean like why, why, why? It's because we're creating direct influence, direct social control. It's more powerful than money. So in a way, um, the idea of money is a more democratic and fungible idea than just direct manipulation. So I, um, I'm, I'm treating it as the more desirable thing. Plus we have all these institutions and history, laws, societies, uh, legacy that use money, so I'm presuming there would be money. But it's conceivable to do the whole thing without money, too. Right? Uh, that's also possible. I, it seems a little more radical to me, but uh, it's also not that important. You know, If there's money or not, it's really just a number. <laughs> there's, a, there's somebody who hasn't asked before back there. Yeah. Hi, my name's
0: Juan. Thank you. It's very all very interesting. Um, I was wondering what the future of your music or things such as art will be if we could live.
2: <laughs> things yeah. such as art. <laughs> uh, well, you know, um, can I plug a gig? Any of you be in Brooklyn on the twenty fifth, come to my show at Shapefifter, sure. you know? Any anyway. <laughs> jazz club. Anyway, um, I don't know, um, I, you know, in in, um, in You're Not a Gadget, I made an argument um, that there's we can use an empirical method to determine if the music most people have access to is um, becoming more static and nostalgic or if it's still growing. And I argued that it was measurably becoming more static and nostalgia oriented um, and globally, not just here. And I, I think that that's a, a result of. Um, both the economics of music and also some of the problems with the tools we use to make music, both of which are software legacy problems, uh, in different ways. Um, I mean, I'm I'm filled with optimism, and I want to believe that the music of the future will be so fantastic that I can't even imagine it. You know, that's and I do believe that, I really do. Um, I think. Uh, that's how we should think about the future of culture. I think we should think about the economy as something that we want to try to sit on a course where it'll be boring for future people. In other words, not catastrophic, but we want to imagine that the culture of the future will be beyond our present ability to wonder. So I I, I sort of feel like I should be kind of modest and mute about about that in a way.
3: Right here. Uh, thank you for coming. Um, I We've been talking about, a lot about the future of X and the future of Y, and my question was more about how how do we trust that this these future are, are going to come or not going to come. So how do you, first of all, for two questions, the first one is, do you think there's enough uh, science fiction going on on both sides? To inform us about the different paths that we could take. So is there is there enough dystopias uh, that we so that we know uh, what's likely to come or not? And the second thing is, how do you when, when when someone tells you this is likely to come, what is your personal views on whether you should trust or not the account that they're giving you? How do you, how do you make this make sense out of different
2: reality path? Hmm. Well, let's see. Um, in terms of science fiction, um, one of my problems is that the variety of dystopias has become pretty narrow. That, uh, in at core, most of this the, most of the dystopias are still the machine stops, or if you like, Orwell, or you know, there, there's there's a certain genre of. Um, a heightened level of societal control through technology, and a kind of a—the hero is somebody struggling against it, um, and people kind of um, fall into it. Most people don't understand their lives anymore, and that's that's something that unites almost everything lately. I mean, it unites Mr. Robot with minority report with the Matrix movies with I mean just about everything so I think um, I don't mind dystopias but I'd like to see a bit more variety and um, I uh, I I found um, oh I'm just we're just in the middle of shooting Um, so there's a there was a novel called the circle that my friend Dave Dave Eggers wrote that was a little bit like a novel version of, of you're not a gadget and so we're shooting a movie of that and it's got big stars and all that stuff and and, and, and you know, uh, the funny thing is like at this point, that particular dystopi- <clears throat> dystopia, it's one of the things that the people who fund movies know. Like, they they know, like, oh, it's going it's to have cars and babes. Okay, I'll fund that. Or, you know, it's going gonna- it's to have fart jokes and frat guys. Okay, I'll fund that. And then are like, oh, it's one of those dystopias about how we'll all become robots subject to some overlord with a big computer. Yeah, definitely. You get that money. And so there's, like, this weird thing where, like, there's this whole little pocket in movie funding that's for that dystopia now. So I think there are too many dis- unspoken uh, dystopias, but... Even more than that, I, I wish we could see more utopias. Like I say, I mean, uh, you can have commercially successful utopias. I, I think the uh, uh, the older Star Trek TV shows kind of got there. You know, They're, not that they were you know silly and schmaltzy. I mean, you have to accept a dose of schmaltz and ridiculousness to do any utopia. And if you don't have a sense of humor for that, then you, you can't be in the utopia business, certainly. But <laughs> I I, um, I I I'd like to see a bit more of that, and we're seeing precious little of it. Um, uh, but then you're asking about this trust like how do you trust a futurist? And I, I'm like the first thought that came to my mind is like, why would you want to trust a futurist? Like, like what I always, I, I am, um, I, you know, I've, I've occasionally, like when I talk to undergraduates, I'll, um, one of the things I, like if somebody says, oh, I loved everything you said in that book, and I was like, no, don't say that. If you, if you agree with everything I said. I I always tell them, I put in a few things in there that I know are wrong just to make sure that people couldn't do that. Like, don't, like, don't trust me. Like, like, that's like a ridiculous idea. Like, you have to, um, uh, these things are hard. Like, I don't, I don't trust myself. You know, like, I I feel like this is all a work in progress and we should be constantly skeptical and checking and checking and checking and ready to change. So, you know, like, don't even ask that question. Like, for God's (laughs) (laughs) sake. Like, we're, like, this is, um, Uh, you know I mean or or the other thing is when something really works then you can trust it you know so
3: um. hi I hope this isn't a simplistic question but um, are there things that you think governments should and, and can do to change the economy that you described and what would those things
2: be? well you know one thing that I'm impressed by is that some of the younger people entering into um, uh, regulatory positions, both here and in Europe, and also enforcement positions, I think are smart and informed. I don't necessarily agree with them on all points, but um, I'm thinking of uh, people like Tim Wu in the U.S., and uh, I could mention many in Europe. And I um. I think we're starting to see an infusion of informed people entering into the ranks of government, and uh, I'm feeling actually kind of hopeful. Um, I I can't fully endorse uh, this sort of heightened regula- regulatory zeal for uh, for privacy in Europe because I I don't because it's still based on the idea of consent, which I think is functionally impossible to to to, to do. I mean, I just I don't I don't think I don't think any human can really do it well, but. I'm, I'm kind of impressed that the Europeans are getting a little bit more aggressive with things like the right to be forgotten. And I I, um, I think that's actually a good thing. You know I, um, In Silicon Valley, there's this kind of libertarian fever, and there's this such of, oh my god, if we're regulated, that's the worst thing in the world. I'm, I don't feel that way. I feel like uh, our value only exists because of our being embedded in society. And getting a little beat up by society might be a form of listening that's not that bad. Um, I, I don't actually think it's necessarily bad for businesses. I think it could be good in the long run. And so I'm, I, I'm I'm actually kind of feeling a lot more optimistic about government than I was a few years ago, a bit more so in Europe than here. But then again, who knows where the E is going at this point? I mean, that's, that's a whole other bigger question. So um, uh, but um, I and as far as what can be done, I mean, uh, you know, without exaggeration, I get at least one email a day from a new startup that's saying we're interested in what you wrote about and who owns the future and we're going to do the startup that'll change the world and make everybody get paid for things blah 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 and i mean absolutely every day i get one of these from some corner of the world and i'm I'm sure i got one today and, and some days it's multiple ones so there's at this point there's thousands of people who have at least talked about doing a startup. And I don't think you can do this as a startup. I think this startups could play a tremendous role in this kind of in this in this this sort of transformation. But I think there has to be a society wide government based component to, to doing something like this. I just don't think it's even sensible to talk about this being as this like you can't say we're gonna use anarchy to undo the, the, the negative side of anarchy. I mean, that's where government came from in the first place. You know, we, we, we have to, uh, and it's a lesson that has to be learned all over again each generation, I think. Because, you know, free-spirited people would rather just be able to have some emergent thing that they didn't inherit from their parents. I, I get that, and yet, and yet, um, we still need that.
1: So, Jaron, thank you very much. Jaron
2: you <laughs>
0: Thank you for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by Extrememusic.com.